Well, um, apart from work, sorry, apart from the home, uh, work and uh, your church are probably the two main areas of your life where you will live out your faith as a Christian. And as much as we would like to think that in those arenas, in work and in our church, that uh, we desire to reflect the life and values of Jesus onto those things, more often than not, the culture of our work and the culture of our church uh, is reflected onto our embodiment of Jesus. Sometimes the pervading culture will be so subtle that we won't even realise that we might have compromised or changed or taken a a Jesus-light approach to our faith. Other times we will feel the lure, the, the pull away from acting with integrity for Jesus and we'll know full well that we might be selling out on some aspect of our faith. But Uh, complacency or anxiety or arrogance or maybe even a curious mix of all three will drag us away from living in a manner worthy of Jesus. And so today, as Jesus rounds out his letters to the church of Thyatira, Sardis and Laodicea, we're going to see that there is hope for worthy work and hope for worthy church because of worthy faith in Jesus Christ. So first to Thyatira, are you a good employee? I wonder what makes you a worthy worker. The people of Thyatira, they were hard workers, Jesus says. He says to them there in verse 19 that he knows their deeds of love and faith, of service and perseverance, and he knows that they are doing more now than they did at first. That is, that their first love of the gospel. You might remember that a couple of weeks ago, the church in Ephesus had forgotten their first love of the gospel. Well, the Thyatirans have not lost that love of the gospel. They've built upon it. They've nurtured, they've cultivated that love. These are good worker bees for the gospel. And this was the prevailing culture in Thyatira more generally. It was a a commercial centre. It had many trade guilds. There were skilled craftsmen thick and fast in Thyatira. And so being a hard worker, a loyal employee, this was the cultural norm of this city. And the church itself, it seems, was no different. However, loyalty in the workplace could come at a cost. And that cost was often spiritual compromise. Many of the uh, trade guilds in Thyatira were caught up with the Roman imperial cult, which is the worship of the the emperor as a divine figure. Or sometimes certain Greco-Roman gods were kind of like patron figures of your trade as a carpenter or a stonemason. And so to work in these guilds was to comply with these religious observances. You had to subscribe to a value set as you cut cloth or shaped stone or produced pottery. And it could also have meant engaging in sexual activity at the temples for these Roman deities. So you worshipped Jesus on a Sunday, the emperor on a Monday, and don't ask where you might have worshipped on a Friday night. See, this seems to lie behind, I think, the Jesus identifying the troublesome prophetess in Thyatira as Jezebel. I doubt that was her real name, but there was a Jezebel in the Old Testament, and she was a foreign queen who had seduced and married King Ahab. And the offspring of Jezebel and Ahab's union was to introduce the worship of Baal into the religious lifestyle of Israel. And if you remember that sad situation in the book of 1 Kings, 
Israel didn't stop their covenant practices with the God of Israel. They simply added the worship of Baal into the mix. So they entered into the very definition of idolatry. They shaped the creator God into their own form of worship. They went to the forbidden high places. They erected Asherah poles. These were the Canaanite forms, really, with which they brought their offerings to the God of Israel. It was idolatrous, but it was also adulterous. And so the punishment that Jesus speaks of for the Thyatiran Jezebel is quite fitting. Have a look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. See, the adultery and sexual immorality was the bed that they had made, and now Jesus will make them lie in it and suffer. So Thyatira in life was rife with the threat of compromise. Work was not something that was compartmentalised. It was not just a nine-to-five, then knock off and forget about it. The work came with a value set, an ethos, a religion. And no doubt, each industry in Thyatira saw appeasing the Roman Empire as crucial to maintaining their bottom line. Now, our employment is much like this today. With the decline in encountering the divine on a Sunday, our culture has decided to seek transcendent meaning through their vocation. We find our meaning and our purpose in our work. And our employers are happy to provide as many means as possible for you to flourish in that work, as long as your strivings for identity benefit their bottom line. And now that we've had decades of work as vocation, as an expression of ourself, our industries have themselves become expressions or projections into our culture of how to live a virtuous life. But at the end of the day, of course, it's not virtue that greases the wheel, it's profit. So if our own virtues and values are a threat to profit, well, then either we have to compromise on our values or we'll be shown the door on behalf of the shareholders. You may have found meaning and purpose in your work. Your loved ones may have found meaning and purpose in their work. But your workplace means to take that away on purpose if your values don't work with their profit margins. See, our workplaces have become so much more than how we earn our wages, they are where a clash of values can be played out and your mortgage repayments end up as the bargaining chip of compromise. No doubt you or some loved ones might feel like a lobster slowly boiling in the pot, only now just beginning to flounder as the culture wars heat up around you. And so you might need to jump. Or you might need to pray and reflect on how you can hold firmly to the convictions of your faith, but also hold those same convictions out gently in love in your workplace. It's worth talking with your brothers and sisters about how to work in a manner that is worthy of the Lord without compromising. But we should also take heart here from the way that Jesus identifies himself in this letter to Thyatira. In verse 19, he says that he is the son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, this language is the same description of the Ancient of Days from Daniel's vision. 
And Jesus, the Son of Man from that vision, well, he's now pictured as taking his rightful place where the beasts of the earth, you might remember those brute forces of the empires of old, but also the cultural imperial forces of our day, well, they are all overpowered by Jesus and put under his feet. In verse 27, uh, being faithful to the Son of God will mean ruling with an iron scepter and dashing enemies to pieces like pottery. That's very evocative imagery for a trade town like Thyatira. But notice that in verses 26 and 27, Jesus speaks twice of the worthy workers being given the authority over the nations that Jesus himself received from the Father. That authority comes through Jesus being the crucified Messiah who now lives and reigns. And that was announced at the Great Commission. And if you remember at the Great Commission, what did partnering in Jesus' authority look like? Well, it was making disciples of all nations. It was about testifying to the truth of the gospel, the foolishness of the cross, the imperishable harvest of the resurrection. See, this is what dashes to pieces the adultery of workplace worship, preaching the gospel. So whatever wisdom decisions we might have to make about how we navigate our ever-changing workplaces, we must remember that the very message that we find being silenced is the very message that redeems our work. So we mustn't stop living it and speaking it. In verse 28, this is how the morning star will be given to us, we're told. Now, the the morning star was an Old Testament sign about the impending arrival of the Messiah. But the Romans associated the morning star with the planet Venus and the goddess of victory. And so just like whenever anyone encounters the risen Jesus, he turns everything upside down, well, so too here he is testifying to Thyatira that no trade guild... No industry, no economic force will have the victory. Jesus is the true sign that God's ultimate day of victory is dawning. Before the dawn, of course, is the dark of night. And it is in darkness that we are plunged into as we make our way to Sardis and we think about what worthy church looks like. Sardis was a fortified mountainside city. And apart from an earthquake in AD 17... It was a place of relative peace and calm and luxury. After that earthquake, Emperor Tiberius gave them a huge disaster relief package and uh, Sardis had been living large ever since for decades. And like Thyatira, the prevailing culture of the city has seeped into the church. A fog of complacency had lulled the Sardinians into a deep sleep, a coma even almost, because Jesus says in verse 1 they kind of need to wake up from the dead. You see, while the locals in verse 1 might think that the church is a lively place, has a reputation of being alive, Jesus says you're actually dead. As we've been on our, um, our vision journey, a few times we've often asked, would Wagga locals notice if St Aidan's disappeared? But it's another thing entirely when your town notices your church all too much. Oh yes, they've got lots on. There's preschools, nursing homes, bake sales, art shows, tours of the stained glass windows. There's hardly a soul in the pews on a Sunday. There's no mention of Jesus on their website. So I think that's a church like Sardis. 
It has the appearance of life and busyness, but the stench of death in the spiritual department. And Jesus seems to call them to an almost resurrection in verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. And again, the title that Jesus uses in his address to this church is very telling. In verse 1, he calls himself, Him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus is the one who holds the Holy Spirit. That's the sevenfold, the sevenfold spirit. He is the one who bestows it upon the seven stars. That is, upon his churches. Jesus is the one who provides the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us and he renews us daily. And that's so that we will be conformed to the Father's will. And so that's why Jesus calls the Sardinian church in verse 3 to remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. Remember the good news of the gospel that was first proclaimed to them some decades earlier, but now seems to have slipped from their grasp as they have drifted into the routines of parish life, filling their schedule with lots of lively activity, but none of it has been fueled by the gospel, and so now they're just trudging through the church calendar like zombies, doing what they've always done, because that's what they've always done. But Jesus says it's time to repent of what they've done. As we cast vision for the revitalization of Sinaitans, we should rightly give thanks that we can trace the goals and the structures that we're putting in place back to the hope of the gospel and to the equipping of the Holy Spirit as we head towards that vision. And it's also been wonderful for us, hasn't it, too, to look back and think about where we have come from as a church and to ask, why do we do the ministries we do here at St. Aidan's? It's been a cause of much rejoicing to rediscover that our ministries all do seek to bring glory to the one who holds the seven spirits of God. But it is hard work to keep the main thing the main thing. And so if you're feeling that all this vision talk at St. Aidan's has been upsetting the apple cart, maybe you think, why look under the hood when everything seems to be ticking over just fine? Well, I'd remind us gently that one of the findings of the vision process has been that no one has come to Christ here in the last 12 months. That is not to say that we haven't been preaching the gospel. That is not to say that we haven't been praying for gospel opportunities. It's not to say that we haven't put on evangelistic events and structures in place. But it is certainly to say, as Jesus does in verse 2, that our deeds have been found unfinished in the sight of God. So we must not grow complacent. We must not slip into a spiritual coma. We need to wake up and press on, strengthen what remains, because in Christ we have the power of the sevenfold spirit, the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus makes three really important promises to those who stay awake at church. Jesus says they will walk with him in verse 4. That's an image of intimate friendship and partnership. He says they'll be dressed in white in verses 4 and 5. That's an image of purity. And he says that their name will never be removed from the book of life in verse 5. It's an image of security. Friend, if you are tempted to lull off into a Sardinian siesta, well, take heed of Jesus' warning that he will come like a thief in the night. Heed the wake-up call now 
For Sardis, the, the warning was imminent. It was not just a general warning about Christ's final return on that last day. It seems to be some sort of tangible discipline that could happen to them. For Sardis, it would likely have been the pulling of the plug on this church in a coma. For us, if we slip into sleep, the same fate of fading into obscurity awaits us. But if we stay awake, Jesus will walk with us. The comforting friend in those uncomfortable conversations with that family member who was hostile to the gospel. He will purify us from that persistent temptation to slumber spiritually. And he will persevere us through doubts, shame and suffering to present us to his father on that last day when we will enter into a real and eternal rest. Well, as smooth as uh, spreading cream cheese, we're going to slide by Philadelphia, which John covered last week. See what it did there. We're going to make our way to the last church, to Laodicea in verses 14 to 22. And unlike some smooth Philly cheese on sourdough, Laodicea is a church that you would want to spit out of your mouth, Jesus says. In verses 15 and 16, he says this is because of their lukewarm state. Now, he's likely making a pun here because Laodicea was downstream from Heriopolis, which was a city that was known for its bubbling hot springs. Uh, But the water, as it flowed from Heriopolis and made its way downstream to Laodicea, it became lukewarm and laden with these foul-tasting minerals. It's kind of like used bathwater that has been left too long. It's now useless. However, it seems that in Laodicea, they've been drinking their own bathwater because they seem to think everything is just fine. In verse 17, we're rich. We have acquired wealth and we do not need a thing. Again, like Thyatira and like Sardis, Laodicea has let the culture of the city infiltrate the church. Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was a banking centre. It also produced fine woolen garments and it was known for its optometry work because they produced special ointment for your eyes. Now, all of these products, cash, clothing, cleansed eyes, they were sources of pride and self-sufficiency for Laodicea. But the church is actually deceiving itself. Jesus says they are poor, naked and blind in verse 17, along with wretched and pitiful. And he goes further in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The puns are potent, aren't they? But more potent is the offer of redemption to this vomit-worthy church. See, the offer to purchase gold refined in the fire, that calls to mind another evocative image from Jesus' hot-headed disciple Peter, who wrote in his first letter about the place of trials in the Christian life. He said that these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Jesus is lovingly offering them the opportunity to have their faith refined by being snapped out of their self-sufficient lukewarmness and into the heat of rebuke and discipline. 
This is what he says in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Now that rebuke and discipline may well come as a a sense of Jesus' distance, especially if he spits them out of his mouth. That means that he will remove their sources of complacency from them. But just as certain as his promise of discipline through distance is, well, so too is his promise of return. In verse 20, uh, we read words that have been regularly used in evangelism. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You might have heard that Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Why don't you let him in and share a meal with him? That's how I've heard it framed over the years. But in fact, these are words of rebuke to a rebellious church that needs to repent. Again, Jesus is using a bit of local knowledge to make his point. Tim Chester points out that most cities in Asia Minor were sufficiently secure to leave their gates open at night. But Laodicea had too much wealth to protect. And like the city, the church has closed itself off to help from Christ. Christ is on the outside knocking for readmission. Once again, the certainty of this offer is found in the title that Jesus gives himself at this letter. Look at verse 14. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is the Amen. It means simply that truly. It's like an affirmation. It's an assent that what has been said is indeed true. The promise that Jesus makes, it's truthful because of Jesus himself. More specifically, because of what Jesus himself has done in the gospel. The Apostle Paul explains this in his second letter to Corinth, especially echoing the opposition of half-heartedness that the Laodiceans fell victim to. He writes, As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Jesus himself recalls the victorious yes of the gospel back in verse 21 when he says to the one who is victorious. That is, to the one who repents, whose faith is refined through earnest endurance. To this one, Jesus says, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. The gospel is the message of Christ overcoming sin and death in victory. And verse 22, whoever has ears, let them hear. See, the one who is victorious is the one who listens to this gospel and responds in faith. To be victorious is to persevere in the faith. And to persevere in the faith is to do good works which testify to the love of God that's shown to us in the gospel. See, as these letters close, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that chapters 2 and 3 are some kind of 
detachable nose cone from, that can be separated from the rest of the weird and wacky visions that come in Revelation 4 onwards. Now, the hard-hitting application of each letter here in chapters 2 and 3, it only rings true because of the reality of the reigning creator God and the redeeming lamb who was slain but now lives, being praised in the heavenly throne room of chapters 4 and 5. And in the series of seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls and numerous signs that follow in the rest of the book, They are all reflections and refractions of God's unfolding judgment and mercy that's going to continue until the day when the new creation is unfurled. And then after all that trial and tribulation, all the faithful in the church will have been redeemed and they will dwell with the Father and the Lamb and the sevenfold Spirit in glory into eternity. It's a grand cosmic vision, as you'll be aware if you've ever read beyond chapter 3 of this book. But it is actually played out in the mundane every day of stealing yourself for serving Jesus. Graham Goldsworthy, in his magnificent The Gospel and Revelation, he calls Revelation from this point onwards Christ's mopping up campaign against Satan. And he argues that it is played out in the frontline trenches of local church evangelism, pastoral care, teaching and preaching. It is being worked out in the Christian home as children are instructed in their covenant privileges and taught the meaning of faith in the doing and dying of Christ. God is truly using what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. As we look towards next week, and a special service where we will think about helping one another, identifying our many and varied gifts that God has given each of us to serve, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that this is simply an exercise in filling rosters or getting more hands on deck to ease the burden that others have been carrying. Now, it's a cosmic revitalization. It is an opportunity to conquer with Christ, to persevere in the faith, to have our heart of faith refined to reveal how we might use our head and our hands in acts of grace for one another and for the kingdom. So Jesus finishes by promising for for those Laodiceans who are victorious, in verse 21, as we read before, he will give them the right to sit with him on his throne, just as he was victorious and sat down with his father on his throne. Now I wonder if the Apostle John paused and looked up at Jesus at this moment and caught a wry smile come across Jesus' face. Because decades earlier, it was this same John and his brother James, who at mummy's prompting, asked Jesus if they could sit at his left and right hand in glory in his coming kingdom. Jesus had rebuked them then. He called them to realise that becoming great in the kingdom of heaven is about service. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life As a ransom for many, he taught them. This is the vision we are called to. To lay down our lives, every aspect of our life, all our gifts, all our talents, to serve in faith, fueled by Christ's service of us at the cross. But when James and John asked Jesus this question, do you remember his initial reply? It's up on the screen. Jesus said, Can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, 
You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And now we know for whom they have been prepared. For the ones whose faith is found worthy, the faithful victorious. And now we know who has prepared them. The one who has brought this revelation way back in chapter 1, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.